All right, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have now to study it in this format, and thank you that we can, um, as Christians, sit around and discuss what your word means to us, and we can apply it and see it change our lives and see, us, see it change each other. Um, I pray that the time of discussion would be really biblically focused and centered. You keep us on track, Holy Spirit, guide the, guide the discussion and guide the teaching as well, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, tonight we will be, be in Acts chapter 15. We've been in our series um, on making a difference, and tonight's lesson is, lesson 12, co-laborers make a difference. So what do you think of when you think of the word co-laborers? I'm used to lots of discussion in my room back in the fellowship hall. I know this atmosphere might be a little more scary, but we can just plot stuff, so feel free. Any thoughts? What does co-laborer mean to you? I can think of instances where co-laborers are vitally essential. Um, I was, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is working as a firefighter. A firefighter by himself is pretty much useless. You can't really fight a fire solo. You have to have someone at the truck running pumps. You have to have a captain outside watching the building, calling the shots. You have to have someone at your shoulder helping you manage the hose and the tools. All those things are essential. You have to have co-laborers in order to be an effective firefighter or you're essentially useless. Another thing I thought of was something that happened recently. This summer, I got a piece of furniture for a very good deal. It was a large piece of furniture, the cabinet, and it was as tall as me and heavier than me. And I was by myself, and I thought, I can handle this. I'll move it. And so I managed to get it onto a trailer um, and fought the thing to get it into my garage, and I got home. And I got it almost all the way into my garage. And I thought, you know, maybe I should call someone to get in the garage because it's kind of big, it's heavy, I don't want to break it because it had a glass front. It's like a cabinet with glass front, glass doors on it. And I was like, no, I got this. And so I did not call a co-laborer, and I fought that thing got into the cabinet, I moved, got the cabinet into the garage, in the last like 12 inches I had to move the thing, a front door fell open and hit the ground and shattered the glass. I was like, no, <laughs> I spent all this effort to get this thing here. I did think I needed a co-laborer, but I definitely did need a co-laborer. And then a couple weeks later, I was actually uh, planting a hedge at my house, and my brother-in-law Simon was over, and he um, offered to help me do it. And the difference that a co-laborer made, the, f the frustration in the previous week's project, which was moving the cabinet, was so great. And the enjoyment of doing it with a co-laborer, doing a different project with a co-laborer, was even greater. And I had a fun time working with Simon. And it was helpful because he could help me you know, space the hedge out and um, hold it steady while I planted it and stuff. And it was just a, a really enjoyable project with a co-laborer. There's a lot of things that go better with a co-laborer. And God has designed us to live life with co-laborers. Let's look at Acts chapter 15. We have a longer passage to read tonight. Acts 15, and we'll start in verse 40. Um, we'll end up working all the way through chapter 16, verse 34. But to start with, we won't read um, all that. So let's start with Acts chapter 15, verse 40. It says, And Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren unto the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, affirming, confirming the churches. Then came he to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess, and believed. But his father was a Greek, which was well reported of by the brethren that were, that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have go forth with him, and took and circumcised him, because of the Jews which were in those quarters. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered them to the, decree, the decrees for to keep, that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. And so were the churches established in, in the faith, and increased in number daily. Now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia, 
and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. After they were come into Mysia, they, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And they, passing by Mysia, came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia, and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia, and the next day to Neapolis, and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and a colony, and we were in that city abiding certain days. So here we are on Paul's second missionary journey, and this, he had phenomenal fruit in this journey. Lives were transformed, churches were established, and miracles were performed. The kingdom of God is expanding, and in this lesson, we'll not focus so much on Paul as we do on his co-workers, on his co-laborers. We see a number of times in the writings of Paul, he references his co-laborers. Um, I'll read some of those passages. All, all the references are given in your handout here under the heading introduction. I'll just read some of these excerpts. So 2 Corinthians 8:23, Paul writes and says, Titus, he is my partner and fellow helper concerning you. Then in Philippians 2.25, he says, Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger and he that ministered to my wants. Philippians 3.4.3, Help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with my other fellow laborers. And in Colossians 4.7, he says, Tychicus, who was a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. And then Colossians 4.11, he says, Justice, these only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. First Thessalonians 3.2, And sent Timotheus, our brother, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ. Then Philemon 1, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer. Then Philemon 24, Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, Lucas, my fellow laborers. You know, we often think of the Apostle Paul as being the great leader and the one who shaped much of the New Testament and the early church as we know it. But Paul was quick to recognize that he had fellow laborers, he had co-laborers. And so Paul was not this solo lone ranger out there doing it by himself. Um, he recognized there were important people that were vital to the work that God was doing. I think it's a powerful testament to the way God works. Um, God doesn't want to use a celebrity. He wants to use all of us. Um, and we, I think, sometimes can think of Paul almost as a celebrity Christian, but that's not how he was. That's not how he viewed himself. He viewed himself as a partner, as a co-laborer with others in the ministry. A spiritual leader can only accomplish his task if godly co-laborers will aid him in the ministry. Someone once said, if you think you're leading and you look over your shoulder and find no one following, then you're just taking a walk. I think that's a very good way to put it. Um, if you've ever been to a symphony, I love going to, sym to symphony concerts. I haven't been to one since pre-COVID. But when you go to a symphony, at the end of the performance, um, there's you know, a round of applause, and the conductor walks back out. And if he's a good conductor, what he'll do is he'll walk out, and before he takes a bow, he'll gesture to the, to the orchestra behind him, because he recognizes they're the ones that are doing this. They're the ones making this happen. He may single out a soloist or two, but he recognizes, I'm not the one making this happen and he points the orchestra behind him. Um, a very self-conceited and arrogant conductor will just walk out and take a bow and leave. Um, but the conductors that are the funnest to work for and the funnest to watch are the ones that recognize that they're just co-laborers. They're just helping lead the team. I think that's how God has called us to be as Christians. So here in Acts 16, we learn from Paul's companions three perspectives on co-laboring. So point one is the men who co-labored. The men who co-labored. <clears throat> so let's take a look at three specific men who co-labored with Paul on this second missionary journey. The first one is Silas, the gentle follower. 
That's point A. Silas, the gentle follower. And we saw that in Acts 15, verse 40. And Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren unto the grace of God. When Paul and Barnabas parted ways over their disagreement concerning John Mark, Paul handpicked Silas to be his traveling companion. This tells us that in Paul's eyes, Silas was dependable. The apostles sent Silas from Jerusalem to help spread the message of the Jerusalem council that Gentiles need not come under the ceremonial traditions of the Jews. How interesting to note that while Paul seems to be an out-front pioneer, Silas appears to serve more in a behind-the-scenes support role. Can anyone quote anything that Silas wrote? No, we can't. We really don't know much about him. We know he was likely a Jew, and we know he was a good supporter. And that was a vital role. He was an important part of Paul's ministry. His name appears 13 times in the New Testament, and every single time his name is mentioned, it's mentioned in conjunction with other people. He's always serving alongside other people. Apparently, he didn't feel the need to have the limelight. Um, it didn't matter what position he played on the team. He was just thankful to be, to be on the team. Do you have the same perspective as Silas? Are you content to just serve, serve the Lord on the team? Or do you feel like you need to be out in front? I think, again, in our culture that so values celebrity, um, we think that unless we have status or notoriety, they're not really making a difference. And the way God used Silas in Paul's ministry shows us that God values those who are just anonymous helpers, those who are just serving and content to be on the team. Proverbs 20, verse 6 can someone read that? It's in your hand out there. Proverbs 26. Man will proclaim everyone his own goodness, but a faithful man he can find. Thank you. So there's a contrast given there between the man who proclaims his own goodness and a faithful man. Um, I think the people that are the biggest talkers are sometimes not the biggest doers. The people that are the biggest doers are the ones that don't always talk about it. And... Um, you see this from Silas. He apparently was a, played a valuable role in what God was doing in that season. But we don't see him talking. We don't ever hear him say anything. And then B here is Timothy, the growing convert. Timothy, the growing convert. And we see him in Acts 16, verses 1 through 3. It says, Then came he to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess and, beloved, and believed, but his father was a Greek, which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have to go forth with him, and took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. I think it's so interesting that the Bible chooses to highlight his ethnic background. So the first person we talked about, Silas, was apparently a Jew, and now we're talking about Timotheus or Timothy, who was of mixed descent. His father was Greek, his mother was Jewish. Um, why do you think that was notable? Any thoughts? Why is it notable that, Paul, that Timothy's father was Greek and mother was Jewish? Why do you think it's highlighted here? Just 
assuming Paul, I'm assuming Paul let him do this, how gracious he was and how gracious Paul was to lead him to under, to try to make it as comfortable as possible yeah. for the Jews. Yeah. He went to, at, especially at being an adult, that mm -hmm. would be a very embarrassing procedure, but yeah. he did it to try to make them more comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. It's highlighted there that um, Timothy chose to get circumcised, and as an adult man, that would be very challenging and embarrassing and painful and not something he wanted to even do. But he was so interested in serving the way God wanted him to serve that we really see a heart of humility here that he's willing to do this. Was it absolutely necessary for him to do that? Was that a, a universal scriptural command that that should happen? Absolutely not. It wasn't. But we see here he had such a heart for service and a heart for what God was doing that he saw this is going to be an obstacle for the people God's called me to minister to. And so I'm going to be humble enough to put aside my preferences, put aside my pride, put aside even my rights, and do something necessary to serve the people God's called me to. I think this is really a valuable lesson for us to learn as we think about co-laboring, as we think about serving each other in the body of Christ. There are certain things that are our right to do. And I love, as an American, I love my rights. Um, and I think it's easy for us to highlight the things that we have the right to do. But God has called us at times to put aside our rights, to recognize that I have a brother or a sister in Christ that is going to be hurt by something I, I have the right to do. And so if that's the case, then I'm going to lay aside that right, or I should lay aside that right. And we see a powerful example here that Timothy was so in love with what God was doing and so um, focused on the call God had placed on his life that he was willing to even face this challenging thing in his life and give up his right in order to more effectively serve um, the people around him. And I think we should highlight the calls here, obviously, not that everyone has to do what Timothy did. The call here is to say, wow, Timothy had a heart of humility. Do I have the same heart of humility? Am I willing to lay aside my rights in order to serve those around me? I think that's another mark of a valuable co-laborer. If, if you are wanting to labor alongside others in the service of God, if you're wanting to see God's work extend and advance, um, yet you're unwilling to humble yourself and lay aside your own rights, then you're going to be limited in your effectiveness, and you're not going to see the impact that God wants you to have if you're too proud to lay aside your own rights. I think it's also very interesting later when Paul's writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12. He says, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Um, I imagine that Timothy had a very hard life, even in the gospel community, based on his background. At that point, the Christian church was very Jewish. Um, Paul always, when he went to a town, would go first to the synagogue to meet with Jews and to share the gospel with them. And so this would have been a challenging world for him to be in. Um, Jews did not look kindly on mixed-race people. They would have looked down on his mother for marrying a Greek man, and they would have viewed him as being not one of us because his, they would, would, would have looked down on Timothy as being not one of us because his father was Greek. And so I imagine his entire life, Timothy was facing this insecurity of, I'm not quite good enough. And so later, when Paul's writing to him, he says, let no man despise thy youth. And the way that Timothy should deal with his insecurities, the way Timothy should deal with these people that are despising his youth was, to be an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. And so if you are desiring, again, to be a co-laborer, to serve alongside others, which we are all called to do in the body of Christ, um, and you struggle with insecurities, the answer is not to look at those people that are um, maybe criticizing you or looking down on you and try to prove something to them. The answer is continue in the path God set for you and be an example of the believers in every area of your life. The idea of, of conversation there is lifestyle. So if others are despising you, the answer is to just live a life that is in accordance with God's word and in line with what God wants you to do. So we see here Timothy as an excellent example of humility. And then Luke, 
is the Luke the Greek physician is point C here. Luke the Greek physician. And that is in Acts chapter 16, verse 10. It says, And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. So Luke is not mentioned by name there, but we know uh, from the beginning of the book and we know from history that Luke is the writer, the human writer of the book of Acts. And so here is the first time in the book of Acts where we see this shift of pronouns, where what he's constantly talking about he, they, them, talking about the things Paul was doing and others were doing. And now Luke is on the team. And so uh, he says there, we, there's a shift to the first person pronouns. Immediately, we endeavor to go into Macedonia. Um, Assuredly gathering, the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. And so um, it's a subtle but clear reference that shows us that at, at some point around there, Luke joined Paul, Silas, and Timothy on their journey during their time in Troas. God is preparing this group to reach an entirely Gentile culture with the gospel, and Luke, who is a Gentile himself, would be a wonderful addition to the missionary team. It's really kind of a motley crew. We talked about Silas, who is completely Jewish, Timothy, who was a half-breed, for lack of a better word, and now Luke, who is completely Gentile. And these are three men that probably never would have gotten along in the political culture of that day, in the social culture of the day. They were from three radically different backgrounds with three radically different set of ideals and values. Yet this is the beauty of the gospel. And this is the beauty of us advancing the gospel, is it unites people from different backgrounds. Um, that's one of the things I absolutely love about coming to church on Sunday, is I look around and I see people that I never would have gotten to know otherwise. People who have different careers than I do, different hobbies than I do, um, different social economic levels, um, different races and ethnic backgrounds. And all of us are here not because we have so much in common, humanly speaking. We're all here because God's done a great work in our life. Um, and that's the beauty about this team that God has now assembled. This team of co-laborers was united not around a common ethnic background or common political interest. They were united about how God had changed their life, how God was calling them to reach the world around them. I think it's important for us to recognize in our world that is incredibly fractured and divided about so many different issues, um, I could just list one or two words and we would immediately think, oh, that's a hot button topic. Um, and so we have a, a world that's kind of um, on pins and needles about lots of different topics. Yet we can come to church and recognize we have one thing in common, that is what God has done for us. And so how silly is it for us as Christians to be divided and to squabble over, over petty small issues when we have this great God who has done such incredible things for us? And so I love the, the example of this team. Um, what are some things that we see in these three men that would be valuable in a gospel co-laborer? What are some attributes of these men that we see from just what we've talked about so far? Yeah, that's good. Can you expand on that? The fact that they worked with each other when they were all the differences that you just described yeah. means that it was okay. Yeah, that's good. Anything else? What are some attributes these men had that made them valuable as co-laborers? Absolutely. If, if, if one man has a perspective that the others don't have and can share that in different circumstances. Yeah, that's good. I know there are people that you all come in touch with and come in contact with that you have a connection with that I would never have. 
um, maybe because of your education, your background, your family history, your occupation. Um, you have a natural bridge to so many people that others in this church won't have. And that's what makes, again, the body of Christ such a beautiful thing. That as God is changing all of our lives, as we're being transformed into God's image, we're using all those connections we have. We see, you know, Luke, the, the Greek physician, would have had a way of talking to people in the Greek world that um, Paul would not have had. Paul was from a very Jewish background. Um, and then Timothy with his history of being marginalized and being in a group of people that nobody really liked would have given him unique compassion and love for people around him that were also marginalized. And so it's easy for us to look at our story and look at our background and then look at the people surrounding us, maybe in church, and think, yeah, everyone else here has it together and I don't. Or everyone else here has, has a good reputation or a good background and mine's not that great. And that's not how we should view gospel unity. That's not how we should view this thing called the body of Christ. Um, the Bible talks about, you know, should the, the, the hand say to the foot, I have no need of you. Um, and how God has brought all the members of the body together for his purposes and for his glory. And that's how God has brought us together. Um, Charlie knows people that I don't know. Charlie has a background that I don't have. There's people that Charlie can reach and Charlie can connect with I will never connect with, and vice versa. And so if I sit here and think, man, Charlie's just gifted in ways I'm not, I guess I can't be used like him. That's the wrong perspective. We're both on the team. God wanted us both on the team because there's unique ways he can use us on the team. Um, I'm not a big sports person, but you have different people playing in different roles on a football team. And if they all try to do one thing, it'd be chaos, and the team would fall apart. But each person is on the team to fulfill their unique role. Um, go back to the orchestra illustration. If everyone tried to play the violin, it would not be a pleasant orchestra sound. Um, if everyone tried to play percussion, it'd be chaos. But God has given each of us unique roles, just like the different instruments in the orchestra. They each sound a unique, make a unique sound that together makes beautiful music, and each of us make a unique sound that together glorifies God. And so as we think about this co-laboring thing, this effort that we are in together to build the kingdom of God, we can take heart in the fact that we are all very different, we all have very different backgrounds, and none of us should look around and say, yeah, I'm not that person, I'm not as valuable on the team. No, you are an essential part of this team. When you're missing, we're missing part of our body. Um, when you're not doing your part, then there's an important part that's falling away. And so it's important for us to view the team as valuable co-laborers from a variety of backgrounds with a variety of talents that God wants to use in the work he's going to do. Um, and then we move on to point two here, which is the Macedonian call. They're all ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit and the natural unity there. That's good. with that. Um, I think that they had their roles within the team as well, and that's important. And I think that um, there was even leadership, I'm sure, amongst them in different areas. And, and uh, I think that everybody sometimes wants to be the chief, or everybody wants to be the... <laughs> and it, it, it's, it's okay to have that. So, And a different illustration, I'm a nurse. So as a nurse, I follow the physician's orders. Yeah. Aren't the physicians, if you feel like doing this, nurse, if you, you know, if, 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 it, if, it, if it aligns with your desires and plans, you know, yeah. no, they're the team lead. Right. But it doesn't mean that I'm an inferior member of the lead. Mm -hmm. I just have a different role. And mine is one to come alongside as a supportive role and to follow those orders. And, and yet I still have a voice. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's a, a key thing is to recognize that even, even in the, as we co-labor, there might be different ones who have a more prominent position in the sense of their that leadership role 
but it doesn't mean that they, I don't, I don't personally consider myself underneath or below yeah. their positions in my quality of a person yeah. or what my part is on the team, but I just, I'm in that more submissible. And so I just think that that's, uh, uh, you know, how we, how we partner together is just yeah. important to not be disillusioned by that or see one as more valuable or, you know, or you as insignificant because you're not in this role and therefore. That's good. Yeah. It's classic because here's Paul who at times had faith for healing and he teamed up with the doctor. Right? <laughs> <laughs> That's the practical side. Yeah. You don't always need the supernatural. Yeah. I love what uh, the boss said too. And you know, the, the, man calling, the one calling the shots here is the Holy Spirit. Uh, and we're about to get into that actually in just a second here. But this is not about Paul doing what Paul wants to do and everyone else is just his servants. Um, they're all following what the Holy Spirit's doing here. And so let's actually dig into that. Acts chapter 16 now, verses 6 through 12. Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. So there you go. The Holy, Spirit, the Holy Ghost has just called the shots. He said, you're not going to Asia. After they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. So once again, the Spirit saying, no, not there. And they, passing by Mysia, came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go to Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia, and the next day to Neapolis. And from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and a colony, and we were in that city abiding certain days. So there you have it, the Holy Spirit is calling the shots. This is a great team because no one person is fighting for headship here. Um, Paul is receiving a vision from God, um, and so he's the one saying, hey, here's our direction, but they're a unified team around what God's doing. And we see here that partnership precedes a massive gospel spread. The gospel is about to go into this whole new region of the world. It's a region that's beyond the scope of what even the Apostle Paul was envisioning at this point. The Apostle Paul was thinking, okay, let's go here. Holy Spirit says no. All right, let's go here. Holy Spirit says no. And then God says, no, go here. It's a much bigger thing I'm about to do. And so God has just built this team for a reason. It's because the gospel needs to go forward. I think about, again, the world around us. There has never been a day where the gospel is more effective than it is right now. The gospel is going forward in incredible ways around this world. And in our own nation, this world is primed for gospel spread. And so what God is wanting to do is to raise us up as a team of co-laborers, to put aside petty differences, to put aside our um, family backgrounds or um, our insecurities and say, no, I'm united because God wants to move the gospel forward. And God wants to build his kingdom and he wants me to be a co-laborer in this team. And so God has assembled this beautiful team of men with, back, with different backgrounds because the gospel needs to spread and this is the team that needs to do it. So then think about our day. The gospel needs to spread today. And God is looking down on Ann Arbor Baptist Church and saying, this is the team to do it. I've put this team together for this moment. God knows you're here. God wants you here. He wants you on, part of, on this team for a specific reason because he wants to use you with your background to help spread the, spread the gospel into um, regions that hasn't gone before. So in verse 9, Paul receives a call to Macedonia. This unexpected directive thrusts the gospel forward into Europe. Notice how God's leadership was carefully exercised in the lives of Paul and his co-laborers. Um, point A here is God's leadership required patience. Before we get into that, let's ask this question. When does co-laboring not work? We've all seen or heard of 
uh, teams, whether it's a ministry team or a business team, that fell apart. So when does co-laboring dissolve and not work? What are some things that make those teams fall apart? We're willing to listen to the other people. That's good. That's excellent. I love that. When you assume other people's motives. He said, when you assume other people's motives or get, and get mad at them for something they did, they did not do. It's so easy for me to look at someone else, especially another Christian, and think that I know how malicious they are, <laughs> or they're out to hurt me. Why'd they do that hurtful thing to me? Um, instead of doing the biblical thing, which is going to the person and communicating, I assume motives. And that's where teams fall apart. When you start to get suspicious of each other's motives, or assign motives to people, or um, accuse them of things, instead of communicating. Um, yeah, Simon. Cross purposes, mm -hmm. um, disparate purposes. Yeah. You know, assuming the worst about your, somebody from your team, but you also you have to have to really be effective. You need to assume the best that yeah. really they are, um, they are working toward this common goal with me, and you know, and, and having giving them the benefit of the doubt when their uh, behavior or conduct seems contrary. Yeah, yeah, that's so good. I remember a couple years ago with Collegians for Christ, um, Brandon Zirup and I were working. Um, together to lead it forward and he had made a decision and I had made a decision we had not communicated well about it and I was so frustrated with him because I thought like he is Brandon is undermining the ministry like what is he doing I think Brandon's watching hey Brandon uh, we've talked this through so it's all good um, and we really like just were like head to head for a couple of weeks I feel like it was um, just frustrated with each other on this thing and I remember he and I went out for ice cream together because we just had to talk and had to figure it out and I had been going into that situation assuming the worst about him and the Holy Spirit just smote me as I was going to meeting with him and saying, why are you thinking that Brandon's out to kill this ministry? Like, wh where is that from? Like, obviously Brandon's not trying to destroy Cleveland's for Christ. Um, he's your co-laborer in this. And the Holy Spirit just showed me I'd had a wrong attitude. And so I was able to go into that meeting thinking, okay, Brandon is doing what he thinks is best for the ministry. I'm doing what I think is best for the ministry. We just had a breakdown of communication. And so let me hear his side from a generous perspective. And when I did that, my eyes were open and I thought, oh yeah, what he did made perfect sense. He was not out to hurt the ministry. This was not a malicious thing at all. And so that's absolutely essential in a good co-laboring team is that you're assuming the best of other people because things are inevitably going to happen that are frustrating and challenging. But when you go into those things thinking, okay, this person wasn't out to hurt me. They're doing what they thought was the best. It really helps as we go to communicate um, and resolve those issues, resolve those differences. Anything else? What, what does, uh, when does co-laboring not work or when do we see teams fall apart? Some people work and some people won't. Yeah. <laughs> Very true, yeah. Or whenever everyone is um, territorial about, I do, like there's three people on teams, I'll do 33.3% of the work. Like, I'm one third of the team. Um, that doesn't help either. Uh, instead of everyone giving 100% effort. Yes, sir. So where she says, someone not pulling their load yeah. within reason. Yeah. You know, you know, there's always a little slackness or something like that. But it's, within reason, if they don't have it within reason, it's like, well. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah, Envy? Somebody else is getting more attention? Or someone is the recognized head of the team and wish, we wish we were? It's good. Anything else? All right, so we saw how this team works. We saw how a bad team works. And so, so now let's look at um, what happened, how the team moved forward. So God's leadership required patience. 
Paul, though an aggressive leader, remained sensitive to the voice of God's Spirit. We saw here that he had two different places he wanted to go first, and the Holy Spirit said no. And once again, Paul was not the leader, not the leader of the team. The Holy Spirit was. And so that's why Paul didn't say, hey, we're just going to set up shop here. I feel like this is a good place. Let's do it. He listened to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit said, no, not here. No, not here. Okay, here. And that's when they moved. Um, and it's important for all of us when we're um, on a team to be under God's leadership and have patience and wait for him to work. God had a different timetable for taking the gospel to Asia. Eventually, in the third missionary journey of Paul, in Acts chapter 19, the gospel reaches that part of the world. Um, God knows his plan, and he knows the end from the beginning. Can someone read Psalm, Psalm 37, verse 23? Thank you. And then Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 6. Thank you. So we also have to acknowledge here that um, Paul was the human leader of this team. And yes, the Holy Spirit is the leader, um, but there is a time where God will appoint a human leader, and it's important for that leader to be aware and sensitive of the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Um, and we see God is in charge. He does not owe us an explanation. If we trust his leadership, his work will be accomplished and circumstances will work together for our good and his glory. In what area of your life is God guiding you? To what is God saying, no, don't do this. I know you don't understand, but just trust me. God primarily speaks to his people today through his word and his Holy Spirit. So carefully listen, trust him, and follow his leading. So I think oftentimes as young people, it's easy for us to ask the question, how is God going to use me? What does God want to do? Um, and I remember, especially in my teen years, thinking that God's will was just this big mystery. Like, what does God want me to do with my life? I wish I could just open my Bible and God says, Andrew Sickman, do this with your life. It'd be so easy, right? Um, but God is developing a relationship with us. And so like we talked about last week through prayer, God wants us to get closer to him through these things. And so even through his leadership, he wants us to draw close to him, not just for directions on which turn to take, but to draw close to him because he wants to be our friend. He's our father. Um, and so we see the team here following God's leadership, and God just exploded the gospel in a fantastic way here. Um, I think we could ask the question, how does God want to use you? And I think the answer to that is wherever he has shown you a need. And here in this story, we see God showed Paul in the vision, here's a need in this place. I'm taking you there. And so look around you right now. Where do you see a need? Where has God opened your eyes to a need? That's where God wants to use you. You know, we talked a few minutes ago about the different strengths we have in this team the different connections we have, the different places we're in. And those unique opportunities are places where God can use you and you can meet a need. Because you're in a different workplace than I am, you're going to look around and you're going to see somebody in your workplace that's primed for the gospel and is ready for a gospel conversation. I'm not going to see that person. I'm not in your workplace. But you're there and you see that need. And so that's where God wants to work. So speak there. Be the person that God uses in that place. And so all of us, again, as part of this team, have unique strengths we have unique capabilities. We have unique environments that we are in. And God wants to use those things. That's where God is working. That's where God's using the team. It's the place he's already put us. And so look around you and ask yourself, what are the needs God has opened my eyes to already? And how can I look around and say, what is God doing? And how can I be a part of it? And that's where God wants to use us. So now we see here, uh, point B, is God's leadership included a petition or a need? In verse 8, Paul had arrived at Troas doing his best to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit, but wondering exactly where the Lord would open a door to advance the gospel. 
Then the light came and God spoke. The vision that appeared to Paul came in the form of a petition, a call for help. Often God disguises his best opportunities as needs. Do you notice the needs that cross your path? Are you alert to needs? 1 John 3.17 says, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? Because Paul was sensitive and responsive to this call, the next leg of his missionary endeavor came into focus. The gospel would cross the threshold of Europe for the first time. Paul and his companions followed the call to Macedonia, where they won souls, established churches, and trained leaders, claiming a continent for Christ. And it all started with a man and his co-laborers who, resp who responded to a petition for help. I personally love this story because I'm of European descent. This is where the gospel went into Europe. This is where my ancestors eventually heard the gospel. And we can be thankful that God's call was bigger than just Asia. It was bigger than just the Middle East. It was bigger than just the Jewish people. God assembled a team because he has a bigger vision. God called them to Macedonia because Macedonia, he has a bigger vision. He wanted us to hear the gospel. God saw us where we are and said, I need the gospel to go eventually to those people. So Paul, you're going to go over here. And I love the fact that our leader is not a human leader with limited, limited sight. Our leader is a divine leader. It is God himself who sees every need and knows exactly how to meet it and has called us to be on the team. I love the fact that God is sovereign and sees everything, yet still chooses to use us in that grand plan. God could just speak from heaven the gospel to all the people of the world. But instead he says, no, I love you. I want you to be part of this journey with me in seeing the gospel spread throughout this world. And so God, again, is using you in your context to accomplish this great thing. And then point C here is God's leadership required partners. God's leadership required partners. <clears throat> Leaders discover biblical vision in God's word. Whenever God grants vision to the man of God, he couples with it an opportunity for the people of God to follow and support that vision. Pay special attention to the pronouns used in verse 10. It says, And after he had seen the vision, talking about Paul, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us. The Lord had, the Lord had already revealed to Silas, Timothy, and Luke that they were supposed to be on the team with Paul. So when Paul shared the vision, they followed with joy and enthusiasm. We are taught in the word of God to follow the faith of God's appointed leaders. But I will say, this also means we should be careful who we choose as leaders. Um, I have been around plenty of leaders before that took um, a high view of leadership in such a way that it was used to hurt people under them. And they said, God may be leaders who you follow. That was not Paul's approach at all. Um, Paul was very aware of the Holy Spirit's leading and very clear in communicating this is Holy, the Holy Spirit's plan. And so if God has placed you in a position of leadership, be very, very careful what you say is God's will. Um, if you truly think you are the mouthpiece of God, you're going to speak very, very carefully. Um, and viewing yourself as the mouthpiece of God is not a license to just dictate your own personal whims and desires and plans. And I think, unfortunately, I've seen many people um, who are in positions of spiritual leadership who view that merely as a position to enforce their pet issues or lead people to do what they want them to do instead of saying, no, I'm actually not the person in charge here. God's the one in charge. I'm listening to the Holy Spirit. I'm going to be very, very careful as a leader what I say is God's will for somebody else. And I'm thankful for our pastor um, on decisions I've had to made, make even recently. I went to him and said, hey, what should I do? And he said, here are some thoughts. Here are some things I see. But you need to hear from God on this. Um, and so that's, I think, a mark of a wise spiritual leader is he's not going to dictate God's will to you. Um, he's going to be sensitive. He's going to be hearing the Holy Spirit himself, but he's not going to tell you this is God's will and you must do it. 
Um, so that's the, that's the word to leaders. And then the word to followers would be, if God's called you to follow, choose well your leaders. We, live, we are in a congregational rural church. Um, and I think the beauty of that is um, there's accountability for leaders. And many churches have chosen a foolish pastor to their own demise. Um, and I'm thankful again for the godly pastor God has given us. Um, but many churches have exalted a man because of his personality or because of his charisma or his talent and he ended up being a malicious and hurtful leader and not actually leading in line with God's word. And so the word to leaders, be careful how you lead. The word to followers, be careful who you pick as your leader. Um, and then point three is the multitudes who were converted. The multitudes who were converted. Because of a leader willing to follow God's call and because of co-laborers willing to join him in the work, many received Christ. We will not know the extent of these conversions until we reach heaven, but chapter 16 provides a glimpse at several whose lives were touched. So now we kind of get to take a look at how this team worked. And we see this now in Acts chapter 16, verses 14 and 15. Can someone else actually read that? Acts 16, verses 14 through 15. A woman named Lydia, a seller of purple in the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized and her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. Thank you. So we see here a businesswoman and her friends. Um, if we were to describe Lydia, let's put Lydia in 21st century Ann Arbor, who would it be? What would her life look like? How would we describe her today? Any thoughts? Business owner, like a, or a CEO of a company or yeah. executive. Yeah, yeah, executive. Which was uncommon in her day for a woman to be a leader at that level. Um, but here's a woman who is a seller of purple, a head of an industry, basically. Um, and she's come to Christ. God is always at work in hearts, preparing them to receive the gospel. Verse 14 tells us how God opened Lydia's heart. Even today, God opens the hearts of searching people, and he continues to lead his children across their paths to share his love. Will you allow him to use you to speak to someone whose heart is he is opening now? Um, it's interesting, she worshiped God already, and so she had a heart that was very sensitive to things of God. She heard them preaching, her heart was opened by the Lord, she attended to the things that were spoken of Paul, and then she was baptized in her household. Um, and then she asked them, she basically says, I have room in my house for you to stay, come stay with me. And I love how this team comes into the city. There's, they don't have a place to stay. It's not like today where there's you know, Hampton Inns and modern conveniences. Um, they go into the city with no place to stay. No church is having them. There's no, there's, no, there's no such thing as a church yet. They're going in there recognizing, okay, God's called us here. We're in the place where God's called us. And so we're going to move forward with confidence, even though there's not a lot of stuff laid out. And immediately the first person they talk to is a woman who has a place for them to stay. And I love that that can give us such confidence in how God wants to lead his team. Here we are as a church in a day where there's so many challenges we face, and we don't know always what the path forward is. But God has called us and placed us on mission, which means he has a plan in place for how that mission is going to unfold. I can't imagine the provision God's going to provide for us in 2022. But God knows. God already has planned the people that you're going to talk to, that I'm going to talk to, that open the door to the next step of ministry. Um, and so the first person I talk to is this, this tremendously influential person that has the means to put them in a place to stay. So there we go. Now we've solved. We have a place to stay. Um, an obstacle, I imagine, that was on their minds as they came into town there. 
Um, and then the next point here is B, a troubled woman who was freed. And we see that in Acts 16, verses 16 through 18. Can someone read that? As we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with the spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by sin, saying, The same followed Paul and us, and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days. But Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. One of the things I love about Ann Arbor is we have lots of colorful characters in this town. Um, so let's take this woman, and um, who would she be in 21st century Ann Arbor? Are you scared to say it? It's embarrassing to say. <laughs> Probably a social outcast, right? Probably is kind of uncomfortable to be around. I mean, she's earning money for her, um, her masters. They basically have held her as a slave because um, she has a spirit of divination. Um, I know I've taught to people um, on the streets of Ann Arbor that, I, I don't know, maybe they are demon-possessed, but they're very, very unusual and say things that are just completely out of the blue. Um, I'd be hesitant to just accuse someone of being demon-possessed, but there's definitely some very weird characters on the streets of Ann Arbor. Um, yet, they are coming to Christ now in this setting. And I love the contrast here. The, first, the previous couple of verses, um, we saw a woman of great reputation, of great wealth, very influential, who comes to faith in Christ. And now we see a woman who is, I mean, really in a really embarrassing and public and awkward profession, and she's following Paul and crying after him, and they preach the gospel to her. Um, the demon comes out, and she gets saved. The gospel works for her, too. And so we can, again think, again, think about our culture, and we can think, you know, whether it's the CEO in an influential place in Ann Arbor, or it's the person who's down, down and out and kind of weird. The gospel works for that person. And once again, can I call you back to who's on the team? God assembled a team here that was very eclectic from a variety of backgrounds. We mentioned there's a Jew, a Greek, and a half-breed, and Paul. And they all have different backgrounds because they can all relate with different people. And so here we now see these different types of people coming to faith in the gospel. Um, God wants to use the variety of people sitting here again to reach a variety of people in our own city. And then point C here is a prison guard with his family. So then, as a result of these men uh, casting the demon out of the girl, the city goes into uproar, they get tossed into prison, um, and we see then in Acts chapter 16, verses 26 through 32, um, the conversion of the prison guard. Can someone read those verses? Acts 16, verses 26 through 32. There was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were loosed. And the keeper of the prison awaking out of his sleep, and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword, and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, and sprang in, and came trembling, and fell down before Paul and Silas, and brought them out, and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. Thank you. So freeing a demon-possessed young woman had landed Paul and Silas in jail. But even in this hour of affliction, they prayed and sang. They could have just as easily questioned God and complained, but they were familiar with what Jesus said. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. 
So let's think about now this team coming into the city. They're all outsiders. They're all from different cultures. They're all from different backgrounds. And so they're coming into this world, and their job is to share the gospel here. How do they do it? How would you sum up these different approaches to the gospel? Three different people, three different circumstances. What's kind of the commonality in all these things? That's good. Yeah, they were ready. Those in the spirits leading. That they have. Yeah, that's good. I think it's important for us to recognize that God wants to use every circumstance in our life and daily life to advance his kingdom. And if we're listening to the Holy Spirit, if we're on mission and ready with what God wants us to say, we'll be looking at that lengthy interaction with a, with a cashier at the grocery store or someone we talked to. Um, I talked to someone on the ski lift yesterday and had a great conversation that got to the gospel, and it was just God opening the door to the gospel. And so these men came to the city thinking, okay, we don't have a place to stay. We don't really have a plan of attack. We don't have a church to go to. We're just going to go start like interacting with people and see what happens, basically. And then the gospel just opens up door after door after door, and the gospel works. And I love this approach because I think sometimes we get locked into the gospel looks like a six-week soul-winning emphasis, or the gospel looks like a discipleship Bible study, or the gospel looks like knocking on a door and handing someone a track. Um, yes, the gospel looks like those things, but it also looks like you capitalizing your everyday interactions for the spread of God's kingdom and for the growth of God's church. Um, that's what God wants to do in our life. God is bringing us again against all different sorts of people. We are all interacting with different sorts of people, and we have to have the attitude of this team, which is whether we're in a prison or walking past someone who is using sorcery to prophesy, we're going to use the gospel here. What's the gospel going to do here? And I love this attitude of looking at every circumstance in our life and asking this question, what is God doing here? And asking this question, how can I be a part of it? They will transform our lives if we can have that perspective as we go through life. What is God doing here, and how can I be a part of it? And so that's the questions I'm going to be asking myself this week as I go to the grocery store, as I go to campus, as I do these different things, looking constantly to say, what is God doing here, and then how can I be a part of it? Because that's what opens our eyes to gospel ministry. On the surface, these three different people that came to Christ um, had very, very different circumstances. Um, they interacted with him in very different settings. Yet they all came to Christ because this team of men recognized God's brought us here for a reason and God has something he wants to do. And so how can we be part of it? Um, I think it's valuable for us to think about how we are assembled as a team. I think lots of churches um, end up getting cliquish and develop unhealthy um, inward focus. Um, if you've ever seen uh, how elephants react to attackers, the outsiders, when elephants gather together, um, they put the young elephants in the middle and all the adults face, or on the outside in a ring with their tusks facing outward. And at that point, they're not talking about what the elephants have in common. They're not gossiping and chatting. I don't know if elephants can even do that. But um, they're united together with this focus. The enemy's out there, and we've got to focus on doing something. And I think, again, it's a powerful analogy for us as a church. If we're inward focused, the enemy's going to just keep attacking us, and we're going to fall. But if we are all together saying, hey, we've got different backgrounds, we're different sizes, we're different um, social, set, social standing, um, but all of us together, shoulder to shoulder, are out facing the enemy and seeing God advance. The difference that we'll make is incredible, and the unity that we'll provide is incredible. Um, churches that are not gospel-focused end up becoming 
cancerous and inward focused and they, they fall apart from the inside. But if we would get on mission and recognize that God's assembled this team not to be a fun click, but God's assembled this team for gospel advance, that will revolutionize the way we feel about each other even. Because cliques always fall apart because they end up eating themselves. But gospel teams don't. Gospel teams only grow in advance. And so let's be a gospel team this week. Let's recognize God's called us to be co-laborers to make a difference in the world around us. Again, whatever your setting is, ask the question, what is God doing here? How can I be a part? Let's be a gospel team this week to make a difference in the world around us. Any thoughts as we close or any other questions? message that Adam, uh, Pastor Adam Burke had for us in the sense of um, the church is made up of people with different gifts and those gifts are meant to work together and really you can be so much more effective if you learn to appreciate what the gifts are that are different than yours and our natural tendency is going to be to align ourselves with people who are very similar to us but that doesn't stretch us and grow us and make us as effective. It's as we recognize that God's pulling us together as a team and we're not all in the same uh, position, if you want to use yeah. for I'm not a sports guy either, so you, but, but we all have our different position on the team. And, yeah. and um, not only recognizing that, but valuing it mm-hmm. and really seeing that, you know what, um, there are people who um, I don't know how to reach as effectively as um, Paul, Paul Ryman, yeah. you know, he can reach into some people and it's, he's just very effective there in his element. And he goes out there to Ann Arbor and, and sometimes people that I'm fumbling over my words with, he just knows what right to say for them. And he is answering that call and I respect that Absolutely. very much so. And, and there are different people that I'm able to reach um, perhaps more effectively than he could if I would take that opportunity. And so it's just, it's interesting um, how really the Lord has gifted us yeah. so many different ways and, uh, and both in our who we have to reach which you've already referenced but just even how we operate as yeah. a church Good. if you think about a country club it's all people that are united around playing golf together and they all roughly make around the same because they can all afford the country club together right um, that's not what church is church is not a country club we're not in a club we're different we're not united here because we all have the same thing in common. But like Jason said, we're all here because we have different gifts. And those different gifts is what makes the body of Christ so beautiful. And it's what makes the church stand out in all history. Um, in every, every society, people like to assemble people like them and rub shoulders with people that make the same amount of money as they do, share the same interests they do. And that's what makes the church such an anomaly, is that here we are of all different stripes and backgrounds and patterns. And God still calls us together as co-laborers, as a team, to move his mission forward. Anything else? Appreciate that, Jason. Especially with um, having different gifts, it's, it just puts even more emphasis on just trust. We talked about this a little earlier, but I just wanted to emphasize it again, just trusting God for conflict resolution and not assuming things. Because especially when somebody has a different, if somebody has a different gift than you, they operate in a different way. They often think in a different way. And if you if you're trying if you're trying to piece together what's he thinking, well, just go and ask. <laughs> Matthew 18. Yeah, absolutely. Isn't it amazing that the best 
like the best strategy that any counselor can give you on conflict resolution is already found in the Bible. Yeah. Communicate. <laughs> Talk to the person. Anything else? All right, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening and the opportunity we've had to study your word together. Thank you, God, that you've made all of us co-laborers on this team, that you've called this team for your glory and for your purpose to spread the gospel in this world. And I pray this week that um, we would thank you and honor you and be grateful for the variety of gifts you've placed in this team. And I pray also this week that you would help us to uh, look for ways in which you're already working and look, look for ways in which we can partner with you that we are first co-laborers with you. Um, and Holy Spirit, we ask, ask that you would guide us in very clear ways. Uh, give us the words to say in different circumstances and give us a heavenly vision where we can see what you're doing and how you want to work. And we'll thank you for all that you're going to do um, through this team this week. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thanks for coming.